Good to see you. If you're new here, my name is Joel and uh, we're going this autumn term through the Apostles' Creed, line by line, stage by stage. And we have got this Sunday to the line of the Apostles' Creed that says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. So he is the theme of this message today. The other theme of this message today is, of course, our gift day. Uh, every term here at Emmanuel, we we go above and beyond our regular uh, week by week, month by month giving that, that members of the church are committed to and involved with. We, we also love to give above and beyond. And so we target particular needs and raise a particularly large amount of money. Uh, we go for big figures. £150,000 has been around the figure that we've been going for in, in uh, over, uh, most of the gift days over the last few years. We, we're going with this particular gift day to specifically target the, the needs of the disadvantaged and the poor in our city uh, so that we can help with the work of Friends First, which is our kind of flagship project that we as a church uh, as Emmanuel, have been serving uh, over the years, helping people uh, to find their way uh, back to work, helping people to find their way back into productivity and fruitfulness and, and the dignity of serving in the community. Many people who are so disadvantaged are so because not only have they been affected by homelessness, sometimes affected, affected by uh, addicted lifestyles and, and all kinds of troubles and problems uh, related to the past and so on. Uh, but, but right at the heart of their, their difficulties can be lack of qualification, lack of training, lack of the, the opportunities to work that the city um, has provided so many others with. And we want to do what we can to help people find their way into uh, a fruitful, sustainable, long-term career solution, like uh, a life and work solution. So that's kind of what we're doing with this. And we've been doing it for a few years now. And there are some wonderful stories of progress in people's lives we can celebrate. We want to keep making that thing flourish, as well as other uh, projects that we're involved with to serve the disadvantaged in our city. And so that's what we're targeting with this gift day particularly, and I'll touch on that before I finish what I have to say. But what I want to start with is the theme of the Holy Spirit, particularly as he appears in the Apostles' Creed. And to help us with that, I'm actually just going to read a couple of verses from Romans chapter 8. This is Paul's letter to the church in Rome. It's uh, the sixth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. So if you've got your Bible with you, turn there with me in the New Testament. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read just verses 3, 4, uh, 3 and 4, in fact, just those verses. Here goes. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. When we look at the Apostles' Creed, uh, the, the statement we've been going through, I believe in, in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth, and, uh, and in his Son, Jesus Christ, uh, our Lord, who uh, was born of the Virgin Mary, uh, suffered under Pontius Pilate, we, we, we look at at 
the Holy Spirit in only the briefest of lines, it seems. Jesus gets quite a lot of information. The Holy Spirit gets one brief line without any description as to what he does. It simply says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, and then moves on. Some people have brought what might seem a pretty valid criticism against the Apostles' Creed, saying, what's with the, the, the tiny mention of the Holy Spirit? Why does he get such a walk-on part in the creed? What about the others? And, and, and it's, it's a, perhaps a fair comment. It's certainly worth considering. Let me say a couple of quick things on this because I think they help set up what I want to say in our message today by way of introduction. First of all, the Holy Spirit is not just mentioned actually in this line. Uh, if you read the whole creed, you'll notice that when it refers to the virgin birth, for example, it does say that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. She, she, he was born of the Virgin, but conceived by the Spirit. So, so there's already a mention. And then if you consider it, even the name that he's given in the creed, I believe in his son, Jesus Christ. Christ is not a surname. It's not like he could have been Jesus Smith or Jesus Jones, Jesus, Jesus Taylor. Jesus Christ means something very substantial. The word Christ is the Greek word for, for Messiah. And the word Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed king. Anointed, particularly, the anointed one. Now, we don't use the word anointed, uh, the English word, very often. So it needs a little bit of explanation. I suppose we could imagine ourselves anointing something if we, if we pour stuff on something. We anoint our salad with oil. Well, kings in the, in the ancient world were anointed often with oil. They, were, they would be given oil, and it would be understood as ritualistic, largely symbolic. And yet the, the Holy Spirit is referred to throughout the Bible as the anointing, the one who, who comes to anoint, the, the one who comes upon people to equip and empower uh, them for particular tasks, sometimes very difficult, challenging tasks that require courage and strength and supernatural ability. The Holy Spirit comes upon them to do the great things that they do. Now, the creed has been saying that Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, by the Spirit, suffered under Pontius Pilate, uh, was crucified, buried, and was, was raised and now sits at the right hand of the Father. He even says he went down into the dead, he descended into the dead. The extraordinary tasks that Jesus performed are described as having been done in the power of the Spirit because Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one. So we see actually the Spirit is quietly threaded through the creed from early on. And then, considering it further, we'll see the Spirit is threaded through beyond as well. In the next few weeks, we'll look at, I believe in the church. I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. In all of these various things, the Holy Spirit is very active. The Holy Spirit is very involved, as we'll see. And so the Holy Spirit, though he may only get one explicit mention of faith, one statement of faith, I believe in the Holy Spirit, seems quite, you know, it seems quite sort of bare. It seems quite pared down. It seems quite minimalistic. But in reality, the Spirit is present throughout the creed. And that in itself, if you consider further, it's kind of fascinating too. 
it suggests to me that maybe there even is real design, there's real method in, in the framing of the creed, that these people who wrote the creed, they weren't just being daft, they weren't just saying, well, we better mention the Spirit too, I believe in the Holy Spirit, oh, gosh, yeah, good, good thing we threw that line in, you know, lately we nearly forgot him, we always forget the Spirit. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think actually it's more likely that the Spirit is characteristically unspoken in the creed, even though very present in the creed. Because that's actually rather like him. (laughs) And this is the first thing I want us to talk about. I want us to see that the Spirit particularly expresses the humility of God. The Holy Spirit is a team player. Now, we, we run generally into a couple of typical alternate dangers when it comes to discussing the work of the Spirit and relating to the Holy Spirit as Christians. As, as a Christian myself, I would say I will tend to fall into one of two uh, likely dangers and mistakes and have done in, over my time in both directions. One would be, as we'll come to in a moment, to, to really... Uh, ignore and downplay the experience of the power of the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But the other is actually to treat the Holy Spirit as though he's kind of pitching for a solo career, that he's, he's kind of left the band and he's, he's, he's kind of a solo artist. That, that happens in various ways. It might happen when we start to relate to the Holy Spirit as a kind of um, uh, just a force, just an encounter, not as a person. We forget that he is always referred to or generally referred to in the Bible with a, a personal pronoun, he, not it, he. And this is consistent with, with all that we learn about him. He is a person, a personality uh, with, with burning concerns, with passions and desires, even with grievances and sorrows. The Holy Spirit is consistently uh, seen in Scripture in that kind of way. We see it pop up in all kinds of ways. The Holy Spirit is, is a person, not just a force, certainly not just an encounter, certainly not just a moment, certainly not just a conference that you go to. The Holy Spirit is, is, is intentional about being connected always as a person with the persons, the Father and the Son, of the Trinity together. He is in team with them. He is deeply and utterly, essentially connected and committed to them. He cannot but be utterly devoted to them. Jesus, when he introduced his teaching on the Holy Spirit in most detail and most depth in in John chapters 14, 15, and 16, he he talks very richly and vividly about the, the one who was going to come this powerful person, this comforter, this helper, this one that comes alongside, that he promised his disciples. And he says in John chapter 15, he shall testify not concerning himself. He he shall not testify. He will not go on about himself. (laughs) The Holy Spirit is not selling himself. That's not his main concern. Fascinatingly, Jesus talks about himself quite a lot. Let's be honest. He also, Jesus, talks about his father quite a lot. Jesus is very content to talk about himself and to talk about his father 
in, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you notice, you read them through, Jesus, yeah, he's, he's, he's cool and relaxed about talking about himself. He's, he's, he does it, and yet he's humble. No one, no one came away from Jesus truly thinking that he was just arrogant and a megalomaniac. People understood that he was humble. But he was content to, 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 for people to see he himself, Jesus, as the center of attention. He understood there was something appropriate about that, although he also wanted to give his glory to the Father. And, and yet the Spirit particularly is given to giving himself and giving the, the glory, the profile, the prominence to Jesus and to the Father. The Spirit who's sent by the Father and the Son loves to see to it that Jesus gets prominence, gets airtime, gets, gets noticed, gets attention, gets worship. Is that because the Holy Spirit should not be worshipped? Is he, is he lesser? Is he, not, is he kind of semi-God? Is he kind of junior God? Is he kind of an intern God? The Holy Spirit is co-equal, co-eternal, co-glorious and magnificent. Everything that can be said about God as eternal, the, all the, these essential characteristics of deity are in the Spirit and in the Father and in the Son. But when it comes to the activity of God, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, amongst people in creation and in redeeming the world, the Spirit rejoices in playing almost a kind of background role extraordinary humility wanting to see to it that the son is honored wanting to see to it that the father is honored he's he loves that he rejoices in that he's not put upon he delights in it and it's his joy to see to it like paul says in first corinthians chapter 12 no one can say that jesus is lord except by the spirit of god Wherever Jesus is getting praise, wherever Jesus is getting attention, wherever Jesus is getting loved and worshipped and trusted and delighted in, that you can be sure the Holy Spirit is very much involved. The Spirit is getting busy in those situations. So it's worth us bearing in mind that the Spirit is totally and utterly, <laughs> cannot not be committed in devotion to the unity he has to the Father and the Son, and to seeing that they are honoured. If we don't hold on to that, if we don't stick close to that biblical teaching, we can go off into mistakes in various ways. We can get into sometimes a kind of slightly elitist mentality where we can almost imagine ourselves leaving the ordinary Christians behind because, well, you have Jesus, good for you. I'm glad that you have Jesus, but I have the Spirit. That, that can creep in. That kind of arrogance can creep in, sometimes quite subtly, sometimes pretty blatantly and obviously. However it creeps in, it's, it's a mistake. It's just a simple mistake. It's, and it's a dangerous mistake, actually. Because it leads to pride, it leads to hurt, it leads to all kinds of unnecessary squabbling. If somebody, as Paul's been saying in, in, in Romans chapter 8, as we could, you, the passage I read to you, and you could read on and see him saying it in very clear ways. If somebody has Jesus they have the spirit <laughs> if, if, if you cannot have Jesus except by the spirit these two are the, these these persons are totally connected totally committed and so the, for the person to imagine that well yeah I'm leaving Jesus behind I'm just going off into experience world ah, be careful there's a slight danger in there there's a slight uh, lack of of I guess lack of clear 
understanding and it can create various attendant dangers that, 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 that will go with it. I guess there's also the danger of even polarizing where we, we see the spirit and the sun as sort of opposite ends or almost against one another. The spirit and the word even as opposing one another, as, as somewhat antipathetic, somewhat kind of set off against each other. Well, I want the spirit. I don't really, I'm not really excited about the word. I'm not really excited about learning truth. And then others who will say, well, I, I'm excited about the word and theology and doctrine. I'm not interested in your experience and your, your, your Holy Spirit stuff. This kind of Un- unbiblical divorce that creeps into the church is damaging, is unhealthy. It doesn't fit what we see in the scripture. There's no polarizing of these things in the Bible. They belong together or they don't belong at all. The truth of God's word and the power and work of the Holy Spirit must belong together for them both to thrive. They are utterly connected. And then a third uh, danger that it leads to sometimes is, I guess, a kind of egotism where you get people who might even be particularly gifted in some of the, the s- remarkable gifts of the Spirit or consider that they are, and then it can become something of a show. It becomes something that's rather built around their personality and their profile and their importance. And again, that can lead to all kinds of troubles in church history. That's happened again and again. There are, whole, there are characters in the Bible who are sad, uh, salutary stories, persons from whom we should learn, who were very gifted with the Spirit, but were not humble, were not, were not balanced, were not measured, and it caused damage and danger uh, for the church and the world. And then there's the, the danger of just plain error. I have the Spirit, so I don't, I don't need to be right about things. I don't need to study. I don't need to understand truth because I have had this experience. And this experience validates what I have to say, even if what I have to say isn't biblical. It is against the Bible, but it doesn't matter because I'm the one with experience. And again, that's, that's going a long way away from what the Bible insists on. And then very finally, I suppose that there's a danger if we don't hold this connection between the Spirit and the Word, the Spirit and Jesus, the Spirit as the one who honours and testifies concerning Jesus and brings attention to Jesus and, and who he is. If we don't do that, I think we can be more prey to our unwieldy emotions. We can go overly emotional to the point where we, we, we basically wallow in emotionalism. And my relationship with God is basically seen as a reflection on how I'm feeling at the moment. I don't feel good, therefore God isn't really with me at the moment because I'm not feeling the Spirit, therefore I'm, God's not here. I'm missing God. There's something gone wrong. I, something terribly dangerous. Something's wrong with me. Or times of elation when we feel particularly joyful and happy and delightful, those are the times when I'm really feeling God. Those are the times when God is near me. If you read your Bible, Almost anywhere in the Bible, you'll realize that doesn't really add up. It doesn't make sense for so many reasons. The mature Christian is the one who knows how to handle the dry, difficult, painful seasons and the times when our emotions don't resonate with with joy and delight. And we've got to be honest when we face those times. But we'll talk more about that before I finish. But one thing we mustn't do is therefore assume that in those times the gospel isn't true, Jesus isn't alive, and God's nowhere near me. Now, certainly it can sometimes feel that way, but we need to be mature in how we handle those times. And we won't be very mature if we haven't understood that the Spirit 
doesn't testify about himself. He draws attention to Christ. He wants us to stand in Christ. He wants us to be full of Christ. He wants us to be steadied in Christ, holding on to what we know to be true, whether or not we feel it's truth at given times in our lives. So there are some things that are dangerous for us if we get going in that direction. But, 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 listen, that was almost, that's kind of to get something out of the way because I want to move to the other danger as well, the danger that we can play down the experience of the Holy Spirit. And I would say this, for all kinds of reasons, is just as prevalent in the normal Christian life, just as much of a temptation, just as much of a risk. Certainly in my life and in the lives of many churches and Christians that I've observed through life and even through history, there's the tendency we can easily fall into of sort of playing down and even despising the whole idea of the experience of the Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it might be because it doesn't seem culturally appropriate, doesn't seem to fit with the kind of people that we are to, to be even stirred up by experience of the Holy Spirit or the emotions of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's because of stuff in our past, maybe because we've seen some of the things I've been mentioning these last few minutes, some of the mistakes and dangers. Maybe we've even been hurt by them. Maybe we've been exposed to churches and Christians who have played the spiritual card and used it abusively. People who've, who've tried to make out that they are somehow superior and elite spiritually, and we've looked under the surface and realized they're not at all. They're hypocrites. And the danger of that experience or the, the, the sad outcome is that we can yield without realizing it to a certain kind of cynicism, a bitterness, a coldness, where we're frankly just, we're not interested in the Holy Spirit at all. We, we're really not. People talk about the Spirit and we sort of clench up. I don't want to know about the Holy Spirit because I've, I've heard people talk about him and I don't like that. That's, a, that's obviously a dangerous situation, but we can find ourselves or not even find ourselves. We can just fall into that way of thinking without knowing it. And there's a danger there for us to surely watch for. If the, the thought, the very thought of the Spirit and knowing the Spirit and experiencing the Spirit has for us just negative connotations, isn't it worth stepping back and reflecting and saying, why should that be? Is that right? Have I got that right? Do I need God's help? Do I need to ask God to soften my heart? Because I could be missing out on something so precious. I could be missing out on the very thing that God wants to do in my life. And the best thing that could possibly happen in my life is to be filled with more of the Holy Spirit. But because I've seen it done badly or, or been hurt by it, it's, it's not welcome. So We've got to watch for both of these massive dangers. And we can't shift the fact that the Holy Spirit is given in the Bible significantly <laughs> to bring us into the experience of God. We can't deny that. If you try to, just read the Bible. Keep reading about who the Holy Spirit is, what happens when he moves and acts and shows up. And, and so much of what he has to do is related to experience, related even to, yeah, emotional experience, related to 
miraculous experience, things that would not be expected in ordinary circumstances. The Holy Spirit comes and does things. The Holy Spirit comes and does the extraordinary very often. And the Holy Spirit stirs things up and, and affects our feelings. We, this, is, this is part and parcel of who he is and what he does. He will be active in ways that are part of our, our existential, our experiential life. And, and I mean, we, could, we could survey scripture. If there was time, I'd try and sort of prove that to you through all kinds of means. But, but I suppose one of the most remarkable things for me is the way Jesus talks to the disciples in that passage I mentioned, John chapters 14, 15, and 16, about the Holy Spirit. And the way he describes the Spirit is fascinating because he basically says to them, you guys, I have to go. I'm going to be leaving you, but it's better for you that I should go. Because if I go, I will send the Spirit. I'll ask the Father and we will set, he will send the Spirit to be with you. And he, he will take what belongs to me and he will make it known to you. He will remind you of me. He, he will be like having me in the room with you, except he won't just be in the room with you. He will be in you. Not just in the room, he will be within you. Jesus is saying there is a measure of the experience of my presence in your life that is so real by the Holy Spirit, it will be better actually for you than were I physically to be in the room with you all the time. I mean, otherwise, the passage doesn't make sense. Jesus is, and it's extraordinary. Jesus is saying to his best friends who he's going to leave and cause heartbreak to, he says, in a little while you won't, you won't see me and your, your hearts will be filled with sorrow. He's talking about being taken away from them, he's talking about the cross, talking about being physically taken away from them, lifted up, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago with the ascension. He's going to be gone. That's not good. Jesus gone. That's not, how can that be good? Jesus says, it's better for you that I go. How can it be better for me when Jesus goes? That's just illogical. Unless he really means it. When he says, I'm going to send someone to you. And this one being sent to you is better for you than if I stayed with you now. Now, if we can read those verses and believe them and still not expect and hope for genuine awareness of the presence of God in our very lives. I think we're kind of being dishonest. I think there's something that hasn't clicked. And maybe for many of us, we need to let some more clicking happen. I, I guess in my life I'd say that. I think, Lord, I don't think I live in the good of those passages at all. I really don't. Now that doesn't make me feel condemned. That makes me feel hungry. <laughs> that makes me feel excited. It makes me think, God, how much more of you is there to know? How much more experience of your loving kindness for me is there? This is, this is why the, the Bible's full of this kind of thing. When Paul writes to the Ephesians, I so often quote these verses to you, Emmanuel, when we're talking about this. These are such important places, like in Ephesians 3, where he, he says to them, he says, I'm praying for you that you will know the height and the depth and the length and the breadth and to know that love that surpasses knowledge. Paul's prayer, his longing for that church, the best thing he can pray for, for this church that he cares for, is not, not that their problems go away, not that the, the authorities get off their back, not that their church grows substantially, not, not that their finances are sorted out. 
but that they know the love of God that surpasses knowledge by the Spirit. That's the only way this is to happen. He's praying that they will be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the best thing for us, that we can know. And it suggests to me that however much we know of God's loving kindness in our lives, we can know more. We won't exhaust him. We won't get to the end of his love for us. That doesn't make any sense. Of course it doesn't. But we can do the other mistake. Instead Instead of expecting too much of God's love, what we tend to do is expect so little. What we tend to do is be content with just notions in our heads. I sometimes talk about this in terms of adoption papers. Many of you will know this from your own very vivid experience. And people who've been adopted would, would perhaps talk about the, the importance of certainly having, having something legally declared. This person is adopted. This person belongs now to this family. It's clear. It's in writing. You can be sure of it. That's good. That's a good foundation for, for the life of any child. I am legally adopted. And yet, you, you actually come into a greater knowledge of your adoption through sharing life with your new parents. The, the feeling of adoption, frankly. Parents actually hugging, embracing, loving, showing affection, speaking words of affirmation, doing kind and tender things to demonstrate utter devoted love to their adopted children. Does that mean that the person who is being hugged by his adoptive father is more adopted than when he's not being hugged? No, not at all. Not at all. And yet there's an experience of being loved by the Father that the Holy Spirit comes to bring us. This is why Paul says just later on in the chapter that I read to you from, in Romans chapter 8, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Cry, Abba, Father. We, we, the spirit helps us to know Abba, the, the, this Aramaic Hebrew word for father, the word Jesus would have used. In speaking to God, his Father, we're invited to have the same tender, intimate relationship and to know it as a cry, not just a, a tick in a, in a, in a notepad a, a, or, or a letter on our desk or a document in a drawer. Yeah, I'm adopted. You can have that relationship with God or so-called relationship with God where, yeah, I, I get it. Yeah, I'm adopted. It's good to know I'm adopted. Let's sing another song about how I'm adopted. I'm adopted. Excellent. Now I'll go home. <laughs> Or, or, or could it be that the joy of adoption by the Holy Spirit, breathing it into your heart, into your mind, into your day, into your week, into your troubled times, into your days and your nights, into your marriages, into your relationships, into your struggles and your careers, and this, this, this breath of God, the Spirit breathing into you, this sense, oh, I know his love for me. I experience his love for me. Could it be there's more of that for you to know than you had ever dreamed? This is who the Holy Spirit is. He comes to take that which belongs to Jesus and make it known. Known in the full richest sense of that word, known. In the Bible, you don't know things just by passing exams. You know things by experiential knowledge as well. And the Spirit helps us to know in our knower, know in a deep and profound 
sense our, our, our connection. Now, some of you, this is a little daunting to you. And this is, again, a struggle many of us will have because we'll say, yeah, I, I've tried that. I've prayed for that. I wish I knew it. And you maybe even see others in the church who seem to be consistently on some kind of emotional kind of cloud of experience just right up there at the zenith of joy all the time these people in worship times who are always hands raised and tears they're always happy they're always enjoying God and I never feel close to God I prayed for years that I'd experience the Holy Spirit and never have let me urge you to be careful of overdoing other people's experience Remember that you are different. You'll have your own walk with God, your own fellowship with the Spirit. And, and to think also in terms of tides and not waves. Be ready for the Holy Spirit to come gently on you. As long as the tide is coming in, let the waves be as big or as small as they like. The most important thing in your life is, is the tide coming in. Are you enjoying more of the presence of God in your life gradually over the years? That's, better. That's a better judgment then. Are you having extraordinary encounters and experiences with God? That's all very well. But that can be happening while the tide's going out. You could be, the waves can be incredible while the tide's going out. I know which is most important. Don't be daunted by other people having spectacular experiences. No, 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 no. Are, are you enjoying God at all? If you have any enjoyment of God, if you have any sense of gratitude in your heart towards God for what he's done for you in Christ, any moment in your life where even the slightest sense of pleasure at the good hand of God in your life creeps up, just blossoms up, just a sort of blade of grass, just a tiny little crest seed of, of joy <laughs> sprouts in, the, in, the kind of the, 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 in, your, in your mind, in the ecosystem of your heart and mind. That's the Holy Spirit. That cannot happen without the Spirit. You cannot enjoy God at all without the Spirit. It's impossible. So rejoice in it, rejoice in it. So there's dangers if we don't expect and experience him. Not just the danger of reducing the experiential side of our Christian faith, but also, frankly, the danger of what I'd call moralism. Moralism, and this is where I want to touch on our gift day before we finish. This is massive, and I'm trusting that the Spirit will be at work as I speak about this to you as a church across the whole city with our gift days. We as a church together <laughs> at this point in November 2018, get ready to give to the poor. I want us to do it in the Spirit. I want us to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit, not out of moralism. Moralism says, well, we've got to do the right things, and so we do them, but we, we, we do them without the motive of the heart's desire. We do them, what, what Paul says in the passage I read to you, according to the flesh, not according to the Spirit. We obey the law. The law, the law, the, the moral law of God, which is good. The law that says, you know, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. The, the law, which also goes on in Moses' writings to describe you know, giving alms, caring for the poor. Th these are all good things. And every culture pretty much in the history of planet Earth, generally speaking, human cultures have, have agreed generally that, that generosity to the poor. I mean, that, that some cultures have done better than others. Some cultures have a higher view of it than others. But, but we would, as, a, as a, just a human species, tend to agree that there's something good about caring for the poor. There's a good thing to do. We don't necessarily enjoy it, but we know it's right. We know we ought to, and we jolly well ought to, and we jolly well will. So we try harder at it, and this year we'll try even harder, even harder than last year. And we set up all kinds of charities, and we do all kinds of events, and we do all kinds of you know, marathons and sponsors and all kinds of stuff to, 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 to keep doing the right thing. Do your bit for the poor. It's good to do your bit. 
What's the heart behind it? I mean, for all kinds of reasons we might be doing it. The motive behind it can be ultimately in the flesh, as Paul says, not in the spirit at all. Very often, we will be motivated to do the right thing out of the wrong motive. Out of a heart that really wants to get God off our back, as if we could. Get the preacher off our back. Get the guy with the, with the jar on the street corner off our back. Get the guy with the big issue off our back. Get the, just, just, just do this to get rid of him. And the motivation that can be even, I mean, I've, I've been on, they do it less these days, but I've been on airplanes where it's been like, yeah, could you put your spare change, your leftover currency that you don't want in an envelope. That's brilliant. The motivation there is just kind of convenient. I'm glad to get rid of all my unusable euros. I don't want them anyway in Brighton. So good. So I give to the poor and my motivation is it's very convenient. The ways in which we give, the way that we serve the poor are many, many and very impressive. But the heart behind it is the key thing that God's concerned for. God wants to generate on planet Earth a, peop- a community of people who live according to the Spirit. Now, when I stand up at gift days and say, we are going to give thousands and thousands, we are going to give over the years millions to serving the poor in this city. And I guess we have done as a church over the years. I, I know it cannot be because of the law. Because as Paul said in this verse I read to you, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, in other words, the sinful human condition, could not do. The law can't change the heart. You ever tried to change the current of a river? Maybe you've seen a kid try and do it. You know, send the water that way. <laughs> it's going this way. Now send it that way instead. You know, you'd get a spade or a shovel or something or a, or a bucket or, I don't know, you could try, get some big machinery, change it, send it the wrong way generally not going to work because (laughs) you're fighting a river and the bible says that the the condition of the heart means that when you just try and change people by law it's like trying to change the course of a river i say to my kids you know i use this illustration often some of you heard me say this about a dozen times but i'm going to say it again if i say to one of my kids don't hit your sister with that stick very often, all I've done is suggest a new idea to, to my son. That's all I've done. That's all I've done. All I have achieved by giving him the law is put a new idea in his head. I wasn't thinking of doing anything with this stick, but now you've given me a brilliant idea. The law generally doesn't change the heart. Now, I might threaten my son, you don't hit your sister with the stick or I'll kill you. Now, yeah, that works. The law can add a little bit of sanction. You know, do this and you'll get in trouble. Don't do, oh, if you do, you, you'll get hurt. You'll get, it's bad. Again, that's, that's the, the, the sinful heart can respond to that. A sil- sinful, selfish, fearful, greedy, guilty, shameful human heart, such as we all have left to ourselves, will obey the law. But why? Because we don't want to get in trouble. I don't, I don't, I'm fed up with being in trouble, so I'll do the right thing. I'll give money away. I'm fed, up with, I'm fed up with being given stares by people. I'm fed up with, I want to be in the good books with this person. But the heart isn't changed. The heart isn't changed at all. Could, could the heart change? 
This is what Jesus has come to do. That says that what God has done by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Jesus, God's extravagant and extraordinary gift, Jesus became for us what we could not be. We were messed up by sin, ruined by our sin, by our selfishness, by our greed, ruined by it. Jesus, the pure, obedient, loving, generous, faultless, self-giving Son of God, poured his life out upon us, uh, for us upon the cross, taking away our guilt and our shame, our past, the things we've said and done and thought that we should never have done. Jesus took it upon himself in sheer grace and kindness. Jesus, in doing this for us, has made a way for us to not only be forgiven, but renewed on the inside by the giving of his Holy Spirit. The person that trusts in Jesus can have the Holy Spirit come to work on them on the inside. So that just as the Bible prophesied back in the Old Testament in Jeremiah chapter 31 where God says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And when Jesus came hundreds of years later, he came as the fulfillment of that promise. He came so that we could have the law of God written on our hearts by the Spirit. So that we inwardly desire to do the will of God. We delight in the will of God. We don't obey the law out of fear out of the wrong kind of unhealthy fear, out of guilt, out of, out of selfishness and greed, trying to be more righteous, more generous, more charitable than the other people. We're free from that. We're free to love out of a desire. It's, it's like if I want my son not to hit my daughter with a stick, the best thing for him is actually that the love that I have for my daughter is in his heart. I don't want him to think, I better not hurt my sister because my dad will get me. Ultimately, it's, that's not, you know, it's good parenting sometimes to at least, there's a place for that. But that's not what I want. I want him to grow up loving his sister because I do. I love my daughter. God works inside the Christian's heart to create love for others, love for people. So that we give out of an overwhelming sense of the generosity of God to us. Trusting in his ability and willingness to provide for our needs. When we give for others, we will not lose out because God will meet our needs. He has always done so and he has already done so most magnificently in the giving of Jesus. Our greatest need is thoroughly provided through Christ. Our greatest need, forgiveness of sins, cleansing of the past. Dealt with, Jesus has dealt with, dealt with my conscience, 
dealt with me on the deepest, most needy level. God has provided for me, and of course he'll provide what I need. He'll provide, what, mortgage, what, what, car, what, how, how are we going to be clothes for the kids, food? How, how is he going to do it? If I give hundreds of pounds to this gift day, which I want to do, and I look forward to it. This is exciting. How are you going to pay for all the other stuff? Yeah, we'll, we'll steward, we'll plan, we'll, but, but ultimately, I don't have to worry or fear because I have a father in heaven who has already given me his son and he's put his spirit within me so that in me there is a delight to do the will of God. There's a joy, there's the spirit within me causing delight to do the will of God. That's why all the way through the Old Testament, the people of God knew that they should care for the poor. Their record was a bit patchy, to say the least. They had the law, the law had told them, you look after the poor. Not always so good at doing it. When the Spirit of God came in Acts chapter 2, as Jesus promised to that early church, after Jesus had been crucified, buried, raised, and ascended to the Father, sent the Spirit, what happens? A community emerges in Jerusalem, and it says in Acts chapter 2, there was not one needy person amongst them. They were all of them sharing their things, selling what they had to provide for the poor. They cared automatically, it seems. Naturally, why? Because the law had come? No, because the Spirit had come and written the law within their hearts. That's what's needed. You need to know more of Jesus. You need to know more of the love of God the Father through Jesus. How are you going to know that? By the Spirit working in you inwardly. So be filled with the Spirit. Dwell on him. Think on him. Receive from him. Sing to him. Thank him. Enjoy him. Be thirsty for him. Pray for him. Ask for more of him. Delight in him. And as a result, write big checks. <laughs> Give gladly give sacrificially give riskily give riskily do what do what you thought you weren't going to do today i wasn't going to give that much good trust the this wonderful father we've been talking about because the spirit of god is busy at work creating a extraordinarily revolutionary generous community let's pray father i ask you for the help that we need that the spirit alone can provide to become the kind of generous community that we must be for the sake of this city and for the sake of your name. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.